know about you guys, but I love a good background story. It's been like that my whole life. Uh, when I was a kid, they would play you know, shows on, on cable with, you know, this is the, the background of this band or this is what was going on when these, this album was made or this is what was going on when this song was, was, was delivered. Even today, um, if you were to come watch a movie at our house with our family, you will probably find me on my phone, you know, looking at IMDb, checking out all the trivia and everything like that as, as the song's going on like this. I like a good background story. Um, I like a good behind the scenes story because often behind the scenes is where the real story is actually going on. And we should not be surprised that God is working behind the scenes so often. And today, in our chapter of the story, we get to read about the story of Esther. And in this story, I think the main kind of thrust of it is that God is working behind the scenes. He's working so much behind the scenes of this story that we don't even read his name mentioned once in the book of Esther. And he is organizing and, and, and moving in, in ways that you'd have to pay attention uh, to see him going there. Uh, we don't read um, uh, even of like these really God-heavy words that we normally do in most books of the Bible, um, like the words prayer or scripture or the words worship or miracle. You will not find them in the book of Esther. But you'd have to be blind to read this book and not experience those God-heavy words. You'd have to be blind and not really paying attention at all to not see God's activity in a book that doesn't mention his name. You see, Esther's story, God does not show up in this big, giant blaze of glory, but every believer learns to see what is not necessarily uh, what does not necessarily meet the eye. And so we've got this going on. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I apologize that I'm going to have to rush through this because uh, there's a lot to take in here. But the year is 483 B.C. Um, and at this point, Emperor Xerxes of the Persian Empire is, uh, is the emperor over 127 provinces that, go, that stretch all the way from the country of India all the way to the modern Sudan. Um, and during this time that we have Esther's story starting to unfold, during, uh, right around 483 B.C., um, he begins this six-month World's Fair, which he is parading his kind of grandness in his empire. The, the scriptures tell us that he is there to show off the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Well, it's kind of toward the end of this fair, this parade that he's been doing throughout his kingdom, that, Zer that he calls on his wife, and he's, he's with his buddies. They've been drinking a lot and kind of in a drunken stupor. He says, hey, wife, the, the, the queen, her name's Vashti, says, come on out. Um, we, I want to show off who you are. I want, to, I want everyone to see how beautiful the queen is. I want everyone to see that I'm with this beautiful queen. And she kind of gets offended by this. And when I say kind of, that doesn't, that's not true. She really gets offended by this. And she refuses to come out. Well, in Xerxes' kind of drunken stupor, and now he's embarrassed in front of his friends, he banishes Vashti from the kingdom. So she lost everything in that moment. And so Xerxes does what everybody who's drunk and embarrassed ought to do. He creates a new law. And he puts out this edict and he says, the new law is every man is going to be made in, uh, every man will be made in his own household. In other words, 
uh, men, if you're married, you have a household, you are now the law guys. You are setting this up. This is where we now kind of see this whole kind of misogyny thing start to take place. And, and that's what he declares during this law. And that's an important law because it'll show back up a little bit later. Well, his officials say, hey, you now don't have a, a queen, and every good emperor, every good king needs to have a good queen, so let's do this. Let's make an empire-wide search, uh, a kingdom-wide search for this new wife. And this is how we find Esther. So for Esther, she doesn't really have a father and a mother, at least not in, in this part of the story. We don't really know everything that happened to them, but she doesn't have a father or mother, and so she's being cared for by her older cousin. His name is Mordecai. We'll talk about Mordecai here in just a minute. But they live in a town called Susa. And what we need to know about Susa is that it's about a stone's throw away from the king's citadel. We also need to know about Esther and Mordecai in the town of Susa, that they are Jews. They're, both their families are Jews. Their families were brought into this empire during the exile, which happened roughly 100 years prior to this. And we've been talking about this exile now for a couple of weeks. But they are children of this exile. Um, and, and so as they're doing this, as they're experiencing this, as they're trying to figure out their way and who they are in, in all of this, Esther gets kind of caught up in this dragnet for this kingdom-wide search of what the scripture says, the most beautiful young virgins that would be suitable for the king. Well, as a result, we read in chapter 2, um, Esther won the grace and favor in his, in, in the king's sight, more than all the other young women, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen. So just as Vashti lost her position in just a snap, Esther went from being part of the exiled families to now being the queen of the biggest empire of the time. Well, in the meantime, we've got Mordecai. And Mordecai, at this point, is just kind of hanging out at the king's gate, probably because he's kind of concerned for this uh, young woman that he's been part of raising and, and, and trying to develop character and, and, and instill these kinds of things. But he's sitting at the gate, and while he's sitting at the gate, he overhears an assassination plot, that there's a couple of guys who want to take out Xerxes. And so he does the only thing he knows what to do, which sets off this chain of events that are going to be very, very critical and important to us as we kind of go through this story. But he reports this plot to Esther. Esther, guess what I just heard? Well, Esther then goes and reports this plot to the king. The king then goes and reports this to the, uh, offici the officials. They go and they catch the culprits, and those uh, uh, culprits are caught, and then they are killed. But a very critical thing happens when, at this point in the story, that after they catch this, the king orders his scribes to record this incident in Xerxes' big book of official royal records. I don't know what the actual title of that is. It just sounded right to me. Um, but this big book of, of this official royal records, and he's got this, this, the, the great things, the big things, the important things that he considers um, recorded in this book. Remember that because that's going to come back a little bit later in the story. But because of this, Mordecai and Esther have now won this great favor with King Xerxes. Well, there's another man that's going to be involved in this story. His name is Haman. Haman has spent his entire professional life climbing the royal ladder. And at this point in time, he is now second in command. Now, here's what we need to know about Haman's background. Haman comes from an Amalekite heritage. 
Now, we've heard of the Amalekites before. The Amalekites were the guys that were always trying to take out Israel. Their feud with God's people, with the Hebrew people, go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17 when they attacked Israel really unprovoked. The Amalekites, um, uh, at one point in time, had a king na uh, named King Agag. We may have heard of King Agag when we were studying Saul's story. King Saul was instructed by God to wipe out Agag and wipe out the Amalekites. And instead of doing that, he beat them in battle, but he preserved some of the best things from that. And he preserved the king, King Agag, um, and, and decided he was just going to kind of use him for his, the way that he, he thought best to use him for. Well, King Agag, eventually, because he didn't get wiped out, has a descendant named Haman. Um, and this should have never happened if King Saul was paying attention to what God had instructed him to. It, it might go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, but Haman's people and Mordecai's people, they really don't get along. And at this time, there is another law that is in place that is that when, when Xerxes puts someone up front and center like Haman might be, that every time he walks into a public uh, space and every time he walks into the public square, that the people are supposed to bow down to him. And matter of fact, the only one that shouldn't bow down to Haman is Xerxes himself. Well, at this point, uh, because Mordecai and, and his people and Haman and his people, they don't get along. Haman walks in front of Mordecai. Everybody bows down. Mordecai stands there. In my head, I think he's crossing his arms and he's staring at him. And this sets Haman off. Haman doesn't just pledge revenge on Mordecai, but for him, this is the switch to which he is now going to wipe out the Jews. So he has to be creative. He has to be crafty. And uh, through a bunch of different events and through a bunch of different ways, he spends time persuading the king, we're, we're told in chapter 3, to kill and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month is when this decree is made by the king because he's persuaded by Haman. Now, one thing we have to remember is that Haman didn't actually go out and tell the king that it's the Jews he was going to kill. In his manipulation, he tells Xerxes that there is a certain group of people who have different customs, and because of these different customs, they don't obey all the king's laws. Don't you think, Xerxes, that everybody in your kingdom ought to obey these laws? Well, these guys aren't doing it. I don't know what you would do, but if I were king, I'd make sure they had nothing to do with your kingdom any longer. So Xerxes green, light, green lights this solution. And the day that this decree is declared, or that it is issued on the 13th day of the 12th month, happens to be the first day of Pentecost, in which the Jews are celebrating their release from slavery from Egypt. Well, we pick up our story then in chapter 4 of Esther. Will you read with me the first three verses uh, so that we can see what's going on? In Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed and in sackcloth. And in every province, everywhere the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
You see, when, when, when Mordecai begins this mourning process, he purposely goes to the king's gate because you're not allowed to do that. But at this point in time, because Esther is in the kingdom, he, she's in the king's palace, she is not aware of the decree that her husband had put out to wipe out her people. So Mordecai, by going to the palace and doing this where he's not supposed to, he's gaining the attention of those that are in the palace. And by way of messenger, there's this back and forth communication that happens between Mordecai and Esther. You see, it's a capital crime for someone to go before Xerxes unbidden. And that capital crime ends in execution. And, and at this point in time, Esther's only been before the king once. And so she comes up with this, uh, this thing about, I can't go before him. I haven't been bidden. He's, he, the way that he, would, uh, that he would bring you in front is that he would raise his scepter and extend it to you to permit you to come into his presence. And it has not happened but once for Esther. And in verse 11, she just ominously states this. It's been 30 days since I've been bidden. So how's this going to work out? How's this going to play out? Well, we pick up in verse 12, and this is where kind of the crux of the whole story happens. Starting in verse 12, we read this. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Fascinating stuff happening right here. Um, not the least of which is Mordecai's confidence that this will get resolved no matter what happens. But he calls on Esther and says, hey, it is possible that you have been placed in this space possibly for such a time as this. For such a time as this. The story reminds us that God quite often pushes God's reluctant people into dangerous places. And Mordecai says, you know what? It might be for such a time as this that you have been thrust into this position. See, this phrase, for such a time as this, we may have heard this quite often, but it's sort of a, a type of biblical code that means this. If not you, who? And if not now, when? It is possible that for such a time as this, this is why you've been placed in this spot. Here is the verse that has planted its hand firmly on the backs of God's people and pushed them forward into leadership that they didn't want. It is this phrase that has caused God's people to step boldly, to blow the whistle on behavior in a company or a community or an organization that needs to stop. It is this phrase that has caused God's people for such a time as this to stand up against unscrupulous people and practices that even at great personal risk that you would be enduring. For such a time as this is what has rallied God's people to come to the aid of the powerless when you want nothing more to go home and put up your feet and just watch TV. For such a time as this 
It is a bold realization that God is working behind the scenes. We come to those times quite often that we cannot evade. They're daunting and they're threatening, but we cannot help but step into responsibility. See, we can look to Esther. We can look to Esther to see where such courage comes from. Because for such a time as this, maybe you are planted where it is that you are for that reason. But very few see the source of such godly courage. And you have to pay attention to it. You see, courage starts when, when we realize that I am uniquely positioned to help the helpless and to stop a terrible wrong. Courage starts when we see that we are positioned to be part of God's relief and deliverance, like Esther had just realized. We remember that Esther wasn't born to royalty. Like, she didn't inherit this position. She had no training in leadership. She was an orphan raised in an exile community. She was young and sheltered, but she knew that God... God was working behind the scenes, and God was the Savior of Israel, and as Mordecai reminded her, God will never forsake his people, that it is possible he has put you there for such a time as this. But she also knew that there was no divine assurance that she would come out of such a confrontation alive. There were martyrs then, just as there are martyrs now, and she came to a very massive resolution. If I perish... I perish. Courage grows, though. It grows when we come to this realization that God has very likely and quite positioned you, quite likely positioned you for such a time as this. Maybe it's the very reason you have the job that you have right now. Maybe it's the very reason you got the promotion that you got. Maybe it's the very reason you didn't get the promotion that you thought you should have had. Maybe it's the very reason that you have the friendship that you have right now and you've heard the things that you really didn't want to hear but you have opportunity to speak truth boldly into those situations and those relationships. Maybe it's the very reason that you live in the neighborhood that you do, and you're able to have the unique conversations and the unique relationships with that. Maybe it's the very reason that you attend the school that you do or that your child attends the school that, that your child does. Maybe it's the very reason that you lead in this church right now for such a time as this. Maybe it's the very reason that you're participating in the specific ministry that you, you are called to participate in where you don't feel qualified or you don't feel skilled enough to participate in. Maybe it's the very reason that you're here right now today. But as that courage grows, it also demands some things. It demands that when it is your turn to step up, that you simply stop and you pray. Like I said earlier, the word prayer and the word pray is not used right here, but Esther calls for a three-day fast. And there is no such thing as a fast without prayer. But then she stepped up, and she went against the edict. She went against the rule of the day, and she declared that, you know, if I perish, I perish. But I must take advantage of the opportunity in front of me. And so her plan is that she wants to host a banquet. And she wants to invite Haman to this banquet. Well, Haman again. Um, I'm going to call Haman a fool, but I want you to pay attention to what that actually means. Because very rarely are fools buffoons or are they seldomly stupid. But they're invariably proud and they're almost always immoral. 
You see, fools measure their life by what they have, and they see relationships as gauges of power and gain. Haman plots then to convince the king to kill Mordecai at this banquet, and he starts bringing in the necessary equipment to, uh, to take care of that. Now, bear in mind that Haman's hatred for Mordecai was not just, uh, was not just that uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Mordecai presented a threat because he was a Jew, and more importantly, because the Jews' God is the Lord. There was a diabolical dimension to Haman's hatred and his revenge. A fool cannot tolerate a God-blessed person. So in this story, in this whole story, we see God's activity behind the scenes. And we see some very subtle miracles that he performs. One night, Xerxes cannot sleep. And so because he cannot sleep and he's stirring, you know what he does? He goes to that big book of official royal records and he starts reading. Now... If I cannot sleep and that book exists, I think that would put me to bed really quick. But he's reading this, and he reads the story of Mordecai and Esther saving the king, and it dawns on him, we haven't done anything to honor Mordecai. And all the while, at that very time, Haman chooses that night to come into the king's palace to convince him to get rid of Mordecai. So Haman comes to speak to Xerxes about hanging Mordecai. So we pick up with our story in chapter 6, starting in verse 6, and this is what we read. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, he's talking about himself here, Let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. We skip on down to, to, to verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Well, hurry, take the robes and the horse, just as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed not himself, but Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. We see God's activity behind the scenes everywhere in this story. And there are so many miracles and so many things and so much activity that God's up to right here. But there are two that I want to point out. There are two common miracles, if there is such a thing as a common miracle, that we see God working behind the scenes that I think we still see him doing behind the scenes of our own lives and our own experiences. The first one is this. It's the miracle of coincidence. Now, that would be really terrible if I stopped right there. <laughs> because God's people do not believe in coincidences. God's people believe only in God's impeccable timing. And we see God's impeccable timing right here. It just happens to be that the king is stirring awake that very night in which Haman was coming by to set the plot against Mordecai. It just happens to be that the king made his officials write that story in that official record book. You see, God favors this. He favors the miracle of the coincidence because he loves to stay behind the scenes and be only visible to those who believe. 
Well, the second miracle is this, the miracle of the reversal. The miracle of the reversal. Nothing is more sure in life than this fact that ultimately God humbles the proud and raises the humble. That God humbles the proud and raises the humble. Mordecai is Jewish, and Haman's wife and friends know it is a dangerous place for them to take on this Jew, not because they're scared of the Jews, but because of the Jews' God. The people who face life's greatest threat are those who refuse to bow to God in Christ. Man, God is the king of the miracle of the reversal. You see, if miracles of timing and reversals are two of the most common ways that God works behind the scenes, then they culminate at the point of his most powerful of all miracles. Next to the resurrection, the miracle of the transformed heart is the greatest and most miraculous thing that God ever does. It was his timing. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it was his reversal that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God has highly exalted him. This might be your for such a time as this moment. Inspired by such courageous person as Esther, let's recognize God's work behind the scenes with his perfect timing and humble ourselves before him so he can lift us up. If you need help with that, we have folks at the decision point that would love to pray with you as you walk through that. Perhaps your step in faith today means following him in obedience and baptism, and today can be that day that you take advantage of such a time as this.